Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living. It's a show about the people and organizations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host this week. Jim Zippo from 98.7 K-Love. Thanks for joining me. Later on this hour, we'll catch up with Linda Gelzer, Director of Public Relations for Carter Blood Care. COVID-19 has unfortunately led to a decline in blood donations due to an increase in blood drive cancellations. Though blood donations have declined, the demand for blood and blood products for patients continues to rise. So we'll talk to Linda about ways you can help. But first, we dive into a major part of DFW that we might take for granted. Trinity Park Conservancy is a nonprofit dedicated to the stewardship of Dallas's largest public green space, the 10,000 acres of the Trinity River. Joining us from Trinity Park Conservancy is interim CEO Walter Elcock. Good morning, Walter. Good morning, Jim. How are you today? Uh, a little chilly, but it's a beautiful day. Well, this is a nice time of year. It really is. A lot of folks like this part of the year better than the summer because, you know, in Texas, we are roasting. But you still got the beautiful look, but the cool temperatures right now is pretty sweet. Well, I know. I, I am an early morning walker, and uh, I have noticed that uh, even when it's dark before sunup, the, I'm on the Katy Trail, it's crowded. Which would be the case for Harold Simmons Park, which you're working on. It's huge, or it certainly will be at some point. Can you give us some updates, Walter? Well, let's see. There are a lot of places we could start. The the first thing I will say is um, we are focused on um, the floodway uh, between the two great bridges downtown. That will be the heart of Harold Simmons Park. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that has come about because of a very generous gift from Annette Simmons, a pledge of $50 million dollars to get that started, um, honoring her um, late husband. Um, as we have worked on the design for a park, and, and people out there would um, almost always come up with question one, how can you have a park in a floodway? I mean, so when it floods, what happens to the park? Um, and so what will um, what will slowly but surely become apparent to people as we're able to get plans out is that you can build a park in a floodway, and if you have overlooks, which we will have, um, that will work uh, on the other side of the levees, up over the levees, into the park, you can build amenities like a cafe, a playground. Um, you can have a lawn for concerts. And so uh, the Harold Simmons Park that we're talking about will be 210 acres um, within the floodway, and then probably a total of something like 12 acres outside the floodway that can be developed. So people will have a place to get something to eat. They'll have a place to sit down. They'll, they'll have a place to have a party if they'd like to. So that's what we're talking about at the most basic core. Wow, that's a lot of space. At 210 acres, you said? Yes. That's twice the size of Disneyland. I, I will tell you, Jim... This may sound like I am uh, um, losing my marbles, but years from now, it's going to have the effect on Dallas that Central Park does when you're in New York. Really? Uh, um, it will be a big, green, popular place in the heart of the city. Um, and it's already part of what we see as uh, growth and attraction in uh, West and South Dallas. And and if I were to bridge over for a moment into the Trinity Park Conservancy, 
our real interest and 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 our long term goal is for the park and the Trinity to really be the heart of Dallas, to be a point where the city in every respect comes together. How did it all come together? Well, the Conservancy is a fairly new organization. There there have been people for decades uh, working on how to make the Trinity um, a greater asset to the city. I mean, it is the, the largest uh, hardwood forest in a major city in the United States. But when you look at it now, what you see is a, a floodway with basically a ditch running down the middle of it. Um, we are we are working hand in hand with the Corps of Engineers right now. But but over time, you can see that people have tried many ideas. Um, the Trinity Trust Foundation for years was the anchor nonprofit organization started by Dr. Gail Thomas to make the Trinity an asset to the city. And the changeover to the conservancy uh, really came with the spark from uh, the Simmons gift to make the park. And so it is a the Trinity Park Conservancy is dedicated to one, making the Trinity the heart of Dallas, two, um, focusing on health, education, conservation, and frankly, focusing on building an equitable park. And that sounds like a very contemporary expression, and frankly, it is. But as one gets into looking at parks, the probably the greatest delusion is that you build a park and everybody can come and enjoy it. But actually, parks to be successful and to be open and welcoming to all takes a great deal of intentional design so that people from different parts of the city, different socioeconomic conditions, all feel welcome in their own way. Um, and so I would say that we are, um, yes, focused on recreation and conservancy, but in a way that actually addresses the city that we want to be. How's it grown? How have you uh, taken it from an idea to where you are now, and then how do you expect to grow it to where you see it going? Well, having generous donors, and, and we estimate this project um, to be one that will cost $200 million. We have raised $110 million so far. But what you also need, are you need a very, very strong, deliberate, design process. And we have contracted with uh, Michael Van Valkenburg Associates out of New York, probably the premier landscape firm in the country, um, and who, uh, to my the last time I checked, had done seven parks around the country in floodways. This would be their most ambitious one. This would be the largest one. But they are well familiar with what does it take to convert a floodplain area into an, a recreation area, and how do you manage the hydrology and all the other science that's involved in it, which you have to know how to do if you're going to work with the Corps of Engineers, whose job it is to protect Dallas from floods. So that's a key ingredient. One, you have donors that are generous. Two, you have to have designers who know what they're doing. Now, from our standpoint, the other thing which is really key is you have to engage the communities around the park and around the city. If it's going to be a park for the whole city, we have to have input from everyone. We have started uh, with the focal point being the communities immediately adjacent to the park. And so starting in, in uh, 2017, uh, the community uh, outreach the Conservancy was formed, and right away with community outreach and talking to people about if there were going to be a park here, what would you want to see? What's important to you? Um, and that input, then we work into our design firm, the Van Valkenburg firm, and we have been in the process of getting designs back from them. And I will tell you the, the three design areas that are uh, the four design areas that are really critical. We have an overlook on the west side of the river um, that uh, would be at uh, North Beckley and Commerce intersection. Um, and it is 
an overlook that is going to serve primarily families because of all the neighborhoods there. And so that's where you'll see the design currently has a cafe, has large playgrounds, has uh, water features, has a place for people to bring kids, relax, have lunch, play, and then enter the floodway through a series of, of pads. On the east side, we've just announced in the last few weeks the generous donation of private property in the neighborhood of five acres to go with several acres the city has available there to build an overlook on the east side. And that will be developed more from the standpoint of how to have an outdoor venue for music, entertainment, And so in that sense, on either side of the river, you have choices about exactly how you'd like to enjoy the park. But in both cases, be able to enter the floodway area, which will largely be for biking, running, walking, places to sit. Now, of course, what happens when we have a flood? And so we have worked on the design, looking at different levels that might flood and elevating pathways and elevating small green areas with benches, et cetera, that will be throughout the park. So even up to a a, a significant flood, you could walk out and, and enjoy it. Um, well, uh, that that's an undertaking. I can see gigantic tractors and uh, people working and in the mud, and uh, that's a monster job. Well, it, there there are two monster jobs that that will occur back to back. There, Jim. The first one is the work the Corps of Engineers will be doing over the next uh, eighteen to twenty four months, which is. Um, uh, doing levee work, both broadening and raising parts of the levee, and uh, and I believe um, doing some bridge reinforcement. We will be working with them, um, and they will know our design. So when the time comes for where do you dig up dirt and where do you put dirt, we'll be they'll be mindful of our plan. So with luck, um, all the work the Corps does to improve the safety of Dallas will be consistent with the design we would have about the flow of the river and where we would uh, where we would build up those areas so you can walk across the floodway and yes it is very complex and it requires a really great coordination between the city the core and all of the firms engineering firms that'll be working with us and and we've been very pleased with the uh, the cooperation of both the Corps and the city in working with us on this. You're the interim president and CEO, but Tony Moore is coming aboard now, right? Jim, Tony Moore is known to me as my new best friend. Really? <laughs> He's my new best friend. Well, I imagine. <laughs> Tony is, is, frankly, the best person out there. We are thrilled that we were able to attract him. He is currently one of the leading park developers and managers in the country. I had the very good luck when I took this interim job to be a part of the Highline Network out of New York, which is a a network of parks around the country, but that, frankly, in other countries as well. A number of Mexican, large Mexican parks are in it. And it was apparent to me right away that the gathering place in Tulsa was really one of the great new parks in the country. I might add, also designed by the Van Valkenburg firm. Um, and it's in Tulsa, and it is uh, along a major river there, and so there's a a lot uh, that says it's um, a good indicator of what we might be able to do. Tony came in there when they had just started finishing up design and beginning construction, and ironically enough, as we were looking at our design over the last few months, we looked around the country and decided Tony was the person we needed to hire as a consultant because his expertise on how to operate a park and his expertise on how to reach out into communities and serve the communities and attract people to the park and know what they wanted was absolutely top-notch. And frankly, I think when we started talking to him about being a consultant, he started digging a little deeper into our project. And what he said to us when he expressed interest in the job was as great 
a city as Dallas is, the opportunity for this park to make a difference to the city was just overwhelming to him, and he couldn't resist the attraction. He has extensive experience in the park, not only the park world, but uh, he worked his way up through Universal, uh, through SeaWorlds, and he understands what it takes to really give people an experience that brings them back. So, yes, we have a great new family moving to Dallas, and we couldn't be more excited about it. And we think he's going to take a plan that we're excited about and make it even better. Yeah, he did uh, 70 acres on the Tulsa Riverfront. Huge transformation. So he's looking at oh. this saying, well, you know, I need something more ambitious. I, <laughs> I mean, this is a lot bigger, but uh, even 70 acres sounds amazing. Well, it's, it's 70 acres is amazing. And um, when you go there, you realize, but, but this is what this is. Uh, let me tell you an example of why Tony is the right person. We asked him, you have a wonderful design there. If you could do a couple of things over, what would you do? Ah. And he said, he said, you know, when we have people riding their bikes to the park to do something, sometimes the bike paths don't take them by where we built a place for them to get a bike to eat. Uh-huh. And we just missed it on a traffic pattern. And so he thinks about when people come to the park, how will they come in? What do they want to do? And, and how do we design it? So that if they're coming with children, how does it line up with the restrooms? How does it line up with where they could get some food? And how does it line up with where they'll where they'll eat and enjoy themselves? So it sounds like that's a detail down the road. But frankly, if you don't take that into account now on the drawing board, you can't deliver it. Exactly. Well, that kind of experience sounds like it's priceless. Oh, no, uh, it, it, it's absolutely priceless. And uh, we've heard from the uh, we've heard from the Highline Network that we hit a home run. Is he already working? Now, is he is we still waiting for him to come down here? Yes, he's very involved still at the gathering place. And uh, uh-huh. uh, Tulsa, Tulsa has the centennial of the Black Wall Street massacre coming up this spring. It's the 100th anniversary of, of that very tragic event. And Tony is a great citizen and he has been involved in the planning of that event so when we were interviewing him and he had only some hesitancy because of what he would have to leave behind um, we told him to take his time stay involved in that Tulsa event because it's not only significant for Tulsa frankly it's significant for the whole country and uh, that's the kind of person he is and that's the kind of citizen he'll be here so we wanted to let him um, complete the important things he's doing there before he came. So I, I expect we'll see him here in April. Mm-hmm. Well, by then, hopefully the, the COVID situation will be a slightly different. And speaking of that, has the COVID situation caused you guys to have to pivot, alter your plans a little bit? Well, it's affected us like it's affected everyone else. One, we do everything virtually now um, as how we operate. Um, we are Zoomers. The second thing it's done is is we had many funding sources that pulled back uh, because they they changed their focus uh, last year appropriately to more health support. And so you found a number of foundations that would look at both recreation and outdoors and conservation and making slight switches in their priorities to make sure they were supporting health care, which I totally not only understand, but I support. So, yes, it it changed our funding patterns, and we've had to be patient with some, and we've had to work on changing our approach to others. Also, it's been, a, I think, a very healthy education process for thinking about how we program the park. And I think it's forced us into thinking about how people have experiences and how we can uh, work with them on that. Just as the world has changed around education in terms of how can they learn at home, how can kids be supported at home, how do families operate? Jim, when we started our surveys, the recreation component was so important about what will they be able to do at the park. And the shift in the feedback to emphasize health more and family emotional health. You know, the families worry about their kids. 
these days because they've lost their social structure to a great extent. So now the feedback we're getting is how do we help families be healthy? And that can be as simple as being outdoors and exercising and having races or walks or things they could do together. But they're also thinking, how can you help us with our emotional health? And if you think about the advantage of 210 acres, we can have events outside and people can do things and they can be safe at the same time. They can be socially distanced by 10,000 feet. (laughs) And it sounds perfect, you know, and when the pandemic does subside, the perfect place would be to go to the Trinity River, the whole area, I would think. When do you think this is all going to be uh, done? Do you have a, a goal, a time frame for it? Well, I'm going to give you a bit of a long answer there. The original design for the park was one design, uh-huh. one park. And the first thing that happened was the Corps of Engineers got funding, got full funding for the first time in memory to do all the work they needed to do, which immediately meant we had to step back and look at how would our park development coordinate with their work. And that turned our project into a three-phase approach, Uh working on a west overlook, an east overlook, and working on the floodway. So as it turns out, most of the Corps of Engineers' work is going to be on the west levee. And so we will be starting on a groundbreaking standpoint, I hope, next year on the east side uh, with the east overlook. Um, the West Overlook will probably be the last phase of the park, but I would say we're talking now uh, four years mm-hmm. of work to do that. And, and excuse me, the West will be the last major development. Obviously, getting the floodway, all the dirt moving we talked about, getting the floodway done will be the final phase. Um, there is one other phase we haven't talked about, though, which I think will be significant uh, both in terms of enjoyment of the park and for the city of Dallas. And and that is we own the old Dawson State Jail, um, the jail building that sits on the East Levy at Commerce Street across from the Lou Sterrett facility. Now, how are you going to reimagine that? I'm I'm curious. Well, That's a work in progress. We hired a fantastic architectural firm out of New York, Weissman Freddy, um, to start helping us with that design. Um, But it's also been a community outreach project of some significance. And the significance is that the communities that would have a real interest in that building have a lot to do with people that either work in or have been impacted by the justice system. Um, And so we started listening sessions online, of course, um, with formerly incarcerated people, with people that worked there, with people that work in the current justice system, with people that live near there, to say, what do we do with this building? Make it a gateway to Harold Simmons Park to make it an asset to the city, not a reminder of, of something really bad. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a pretty fantastic uh, dialogue so far. We also engaged a, a design firm, uh, Colocate, out of New Orleans, that specializes, I would say these days, the easiest way to understand it, specializes in how design affects justice and fairness. And so they have helped numerous communities, for example, deal with the issue of what do we do with statues we no longer want up? Mm -hmm. Um, When do you say, let's just get rid of something? And when do you balance that with, well, we don't want to pretend like it never happened, but we need to focus on the future and we need to focus on the elements that we want to be rather than what we were. So Weissman Freddy has done some brilliant uh, design work and really teeing off on the feedback, which is, well, as Mark Lamster has said, it's the ugliest building in Dallas and arguably one of the 10 ugliest in Texas. I was going to say. How can you open that up? And so I can assure you, whatever is done with that building, the first thing you'll see is it's going to be opened up. It's a valuable building in this respect. It's grandfathered in. You can't build anything 
that close to a levee anymore. Um, it, it, it was built very solidly. It is a really well-constructed building. So we will open that building up. Um, and we currently have a very complex design process going for balancing a couple of elements. The first one is make it an amenity of the park. So we will probably open up the first few floors and, and have it be a place where people can come in, a very big, wide-open atrium, get something to eat. Uh, there may be a bike shop, a coffee shop there. Um, uh, we, the roof is the, is the place to be in Dallas for a view. Um, you have the entire Trinity on one side, and then when you turn 180 degrees, you have the entire city of uh, downtown of Dallas. Um, but between that roof and the first few floors, um, we would love to have some opportunities to generate revenues mm -hmm. to support the park operation. But I, I know we will also have social um, uh, needs that we want to do there that we think would be oriented around the justice system. So it be, could be counseling resources, could be employment resources, um, uh, something that uh, something that really fits the the uh, the overall neighborhood there. Well, that takes a lot of creative thinking. That sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing this. I am too. It's going to happen. I can tell you that. Hey, tell me about some of the creative things you guys have had to do to continue raising funds and awareness with the cancellation of events. And it's had to have been tough. And uh, what is your plan going forward to make some money and make sure you have the money you need to finish the job? Well, the first thing I would think of in terms of applying creativity is that um, I, I mentioned to you that we were going to probably break ground on the east side because of the practical considerations. But I think we'll start programming on the west side. Oh. Um, uh, we've had conversations with neighborhood leaders there. Uh, they want help um, in, in doing things for the families and the residents. And so um, we have experimented some, but if there's, if there's a learning I've picked up in terms of how to develop good programming uh, for a for a park or a public space, mm -hmm. you have to experiment and you have to be willing to fail to learn. And so we're going to, I think you'll see starting this spring and summer, you'll see us having more and more events. We will probably not be able to do the great thousands of people runs that come along the levees and, and all the, uh, the eating and drinking and entertainment that goes along with that, that doesn't fit the COVID environment, but small events. Uh, we had a virtual event of uh, uh, yoga in the hood on the, on the bridge. Uh, and it used to be that we'd have everybody on, on the uh, Ron Kirk bridge, but now we can have the yoga instructor on the bridge and we can have a, 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 a zoom connection to everyone at home. So uh, experimenting with programming is going to be the number one priority. Um, that's uh, and, and that's where Tony's Tony's help will be immeasurable. When I asked him how did he generate enthusiasm for the gathering place, he said, "Well, we put a little, we had to put a band together to do some music, and then we got on a bus and we started going around the city, entertaining people and feeding people and talking to them about what the gathering." Place oh, that's was awesome! <laughs> that's just now, awesome. That, that's not someone who's got an instruction book about programming. That's someone who gets it. He's writing the instruction book. That's exactly right. He's he's writing the book, and that's and that's what we'll be working on. So I think what you'll see is a lot of out of box thinking, a lot of partnering with other organizations um, who would like to try things. Um, now, will they uh, will they be in the park area? Some will be for sure because it's such a great space, mm -hmm. but we'll be doing what everybody else does. Uh, we'll be online with a lot of opportunities. We've had great cleanup volunteer activities we've done in the past. That wasn't going to fit the COVID environment this past year, so we went virtual with cleanups, and people cleaned up their own neighborhoods, collected trash, and, and so 
we'll find ways to let people do things where they are, but we'll provide resource, instruction, make it fun, um, and see what people want to do. And, and as time goes on, yes, we'll concentrate some of those activities downtown and we'll concentrate them in the park. But right now, we're going to experiment with programming wherever and however we can just to see what is it people really want to do. That's great. Walter, give us uh, the information on how to contact you or uh, I guess anybody. There's so many different levels at Trinity Park Conservancy. Uh, The website, what is that address? The website is Mm trinityparkconservancy.org, O-R-G. And it's a great website. There's a lot of information there. Um, If you have a question about anything, you can send an email to info at trinityparkconservancy.org or if somebody wants to ask me a question guess what the address is walter (laughs) at trinityparkconservancy.org six months from now you can send it to tony at trinityparkconservancy.org i'm looking forward to seeing him here and if this is going to take a few years to get done i uh, i hope you'll come back and join us again give us an update Oh, you bet. You bet. Because uh, there's always going to be a story out there. And uh, we really appreciate you helping us spread the word right now. And uh, we really do care about what everyone in Dallas thinks about this. Well, Intercom is behind you 100 percent. If there's anything we can do with our radio stations, please let us know. All right. Walter Elcock, the interim president and CEO of Trinity Park Conservancy. Check out their website. They're going to be doing some amazing things. Thanks a lot, Walter. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Bye-bye. And now we switch on line two. Just got her on the line right now. Linda Gelser, Director of Public Relations for Carter Blood Care. Hi, Linda. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Just fine. A little chilly. It's uh, nice. This time of year, I enjoy really a lot. You know, instead of roasting during the summer, I'll take a cool (laughs) breeze and I'll just wear a jacket. (laughs) I agree. I'm the same way. I would much rather have it a little on the cool side. Exactly. So uh, tell me about Carter Blood Care. What's going on with you folks? Well, I first want to make sure if we have any listeners who don't know who we are, that we are the independent community blood supplier to about 90% of the hospitals in the north, central, and east Texas area. That much? Wow. It's a 58-county area. We have a headquarters down in Woodway, which is just outside of Waco. We have a headquarters in Tyler, and then we have our main headquarters here in Bedford that is smack dab in the middle of Dallas and Fort Worth and easy access to the airport and so forth. But we are the, the folks who are collecting blood for most of the hospitals near you, and We are really trying to emphasize to folks that there is no other way for us to get blood except through altruistic people, you know, who want to help someone else. There is no artificial blood. It can't be manufactured. And I also want people to just understand that this is a fundamental foundation of our healthcare system. Blood is a requirement for so many of the medical miracles that are performed every day, and many of them would not be able to happen without a safe and sufficient blood supply. And we know that's true because many parts of the world don't have such a thing. And I just want to invite people to begin to look at blood donation through a different lens and understand the uh, value and the importance and the essentiality, if that's a word, understanding that blood donation is an essential part of our community health care system. It is considered an com- act of community service, and it's one of the biggest ones we have. And uh, it's desperately in need now. I imagine you're getting real inconsistent levels and fluctuating uh, participations. We certainly are, Jim. I, it's an understatement. All of us have gone through the same thing that, you know, COVID has changed our lives. We understand that. And when it comes to life-saving things, um, ours is a big effect. So what happened was as soon as we started having, you know, the shelter in place, social distancing, all of that, it meant that a lot of our potential sponsors of blood drives were canceling the drives that were already on the books and not booking other ones. So everyone was sent home, right? And if they had planned to have a blood drive at their office, their place of worship, their school, 
so forth and so on, those were canceled. And we're talking hundreds of blood drives were canceled. Oh, wow. So you guys really need some help. We do. And and it hasn't uh, I want to I don't want to take away credit to the people who kept giving at our blood donor centers. We would ask people, please encourage your employees, your students, whatever, to go to one of our donation centers if you can't host a blood drive. And we have since had many people, now that we're sort of in the groove of this unusual time, people have stepped up and hosted blood drives. But here's the challenge. Certainly, they're not near the numbers of blood drives we formerly had. But also, when people come to a blood drive, we are social distancing, we're limiting the numbers of people on a bus, or we're spreading out the beds in an inside setup. So we're not collecting as many people in the same period of time as we did before. Now, you're, you're testing, folks. I'm, I'm sure that's a really urgent part of the process before they even get in the bus, I would think, wouldn't they? No, we don't necessarily need okay. to, Jim, and here's the reason why. And that's, right. that's a, common, a common question we get. Part of the routine process of blood donation mm-hmm. is that we do a mini physical, if you will. Oh. So people are asked to never show up to donate blood if they do not feel well and healthy. So if you got any kind of aches, pains, headaches, whatever, probably not a good idea to donate blood because we don't know what it is. But we also check temperature as a regular part of the process, and mm-hmm. we're checking temperature by mouth. You know, we're not just doing the laser scan on your forehead. So we check temperature, blood pressure, pulse rate, um, and then we also do hemoglobin levels. So we, the screening process itself is in place because it is, it is what it is. It's a volunteer process. It, we do have some pieces of physical you know, screening there, but we also have the questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And this virus is not a virus that is spread through the blood. We don't have an incident yet of this virus being spread through the blood supply. This is a respiratory virus. So Carter Blood Care only tests blood for pathogens that are transmitted through blood. Mm-hmm. So it's not even necessary for us to test you for COVID. Now, if we get a call from a donor and they say, I just gave blood, I tested positive for COVID. Obviously, that unit is not going to be used because the person isn't well. And again, our number one thing is you need to be well and healthy when you donate. Okay. So we have a number on that when people leave and they have their post-donation instructions or a little card, there's a number on there that says, if you don't feel well, anything happens within the next few days, I forget what the time period is on there, call us back. And let us know. There's a specific number on there, but even if you called our main number, they're going to send you to the right place because that's a part of our FDA requirements. It's very important during times of year like West Nile, uh, when that's very common in the community. You wouldn't imagine how many cases of West Nile are picked up because we have an asymptomatic blood donor who gave blood. They're feeling well and healthy. They have no signs or symptoms. We test their blood and call them and say, hey, guess what? <laughs> you have West Nile virus. Oh, whoa. And we have to report that, of course, to the Yikes. county health department. So we are often an indicator of what's mm-hmm. going on in the community because we're finding people who are well and healthy that are testing positive. What does your daily routine look like now? Well, we are doing a lot more operations meetings than we usually would because we're keeping such a close pulse on the blood supply, the inventory. Mm-hmm. We are having to call on our sisters and brothers in the blood industry in other cities to help supply blood to our patients because we are not maintaining the level of blood that is required for our hospital orders. North Texas, you need to step up to the plate. Exactly. Our hospital relations department is doing daily communications with our hospital customers to let them know uh, what the supply looks like. Many people don't realize that Most of the blood available is actually on the hospital shelves. We want it that way because it's more easily accessible when needed, right? But we also want to have a supply sitting on our shelves that looks healthy so that if they don't have what they need, just because we've made a delivery to them doesn't mean it's going to contain all the different blood types that they actually end up needing. 
So hospitals, most of our larger customers especially, have standard orders that they get. And when we get into times like this, sometimes we have to contact them and say, we're not filling standard orders right now. We're going to be filling on a basis of ordering for the procedures you're going to be doing and then, you know, whatever backup some of our trauma facilities might need for type O blood and things like that. But the the routine is not the same for them, and so they have to keep us posted on what they're doing, whether they're carrying full surgical load or whether they're cutting back on elective surgeries. We have to communicate to the community accordingly so that we can monitor what that need is and then what the availability is. This time of year is challenging anyway because it's the time of year when people get colds and flu and so forth. Well, this year we haven't seen as much of that because we're all masking and social distancing. Yeah. But it also means that people are ill or they are not getting out because they're trying to be safe. So we're balancing that. We know that there is a um, a section of people in our population who are very concerned and they shouldn't be getting out. And they are some of our regular blood donors. But they're taking it easy. Maybe they're not getting out as frequently as they usually do. So they might be donating, but it's not at the same frequency with which they've done in the past. So some of those things are affecting what we see in a consistency in the inventory. So you wouldn't mind if some people came by this month even. And oh, we would love that. Today, we would love it. tomorrow, next day. How, yeah. do they, how do they get in touch with you? Well, the best way to make an appointment is to visit carterbloodcare.org. Mm-hmm. That's our website. All right. One of the first tabs is Donate Blood. And when there's a drop-down that says Donate Today, you click that, and it brings you to a page where you can say you can enter your zip code, your city, your uh, specific windows of dates with which you want to donate. You can look at do I want to donate at a community blood drive or do I want to donate in a donation center, one of our fixed sites, and you can make those options. If you would rather somebody walk you through the process easily, you can call or text 800-366-2834. You don't have to do the one, obviously, anymore. If you're on a mobile phone, 800-366-2834, and someone can walk you through that process, either by phone or on text. We make appointments all the time through our texting option, And we can send you reminders, so if that's helpful to you. We do appreciate appointments right now because it helps us with the social distancing and planning, you know, how many people are going to be somewhere at the same time. But we do accept walk-ins, and if you you walk up, especially to a donation center, and it's a little full right now, we can say, hey, give us your mobile number. We'll call you when we have an opening. You know, so... It's, we try to make it easy. We're doing a lot of extra cleaning and sanitizing like other people are right now. So it's just, you know, I think it just takes a little more time on our back end, you know, with our folks trying to make sure they're keeping people safe between donors and while they're there waiting. Let's talk about why blood is needed and how often uh, blood transfusions are administered to hospital patients. I mean, it, it, there may they may not be... The, the same amount that you would have, uh, you know, without COVID-19, regardless of that. Uh, why is blood needed so much right now? You know, this this is an interesting story that people don't really think about. I spoke with a young woman the other day who is one of our healthcare heroes out there. She's an ICU nurse at one of our large healthcare systems, and she lives with sickle cell disease. Oh. One of the most healthy human beings I've ever seen, looking at her beautiful young woman, and she's obviously working very, very hard during this pandemic and probably always does, but she looks perfectly normal to me. If it were not for blood donors, her life would not be that easy. She would not look that well. The lifespan of people living with sickle cell disease today is well into their 50s for people who get good uh, blood donation, blood transfusions on a regular basis. Many people did not live into their 20th birthday Yikes. before. Wow. So they are getting more routine blood transfusions. And if you think about this, many of our sickle cell patients are getting what we now know or what we've, a procedure that hospitals are now doing called red cell exchange transfusion. 
think about an oil exchange for your mm. car. Okay. They're taking out pretty much almost their whole red blood cell supply and refilling it, if you will, with donor blood that is healthy and fresh and, you know, gives them a, a whole big new lease on life for the next few weeks. So when someone has sickle cell, these these red cells, instead of being round or kind of donut-shaped, they're mm-hmm. more crescent-shaped, and they clog up in the vessels. They don't flow smoothly like they're supposed to. They also have a shorter life cycle than a normal red blood cell. And what does a red blood cell do? Well, it gives us oxygen. It provides iron. So if someone is low on oxygen all the time, they're tired, their blood cells are clogging up, they ache, their joints hurt, sometimes it's a pain that is so great they have to take major painkillers. It's not like an aspirin is going to help. So these are people who have a very difficult life, but when they get regular transfusions, some of them every six weeks or so, and get these red cell exchanges, they are having a really healthy life, much better than they would have had otherwise. But if, you're, but if an adult has 10 units of blood in their body, think about that. Hence, a lot of donations needed, right? Exactly. And that's a person that is living a good life. They're not walking around looking like a patient. So think about that and then add in the people who are patients, who are heart surgery patients, transplant patients, orthopedic patients, people who are in accidents, mothers who experience an urgency in childbirth where there's a, a you know, something unexpected happens, a ruptured something and it causes a lot of bleeding. There can be a lot of blood utilized in a situation just like that, something that goes awry during childbirth. So there are things happening every single day that require the help of blood transfusions, red cells and platelets to help with clotting, cancer patients who undergo treatments. Some of the side effects of cancer treatment require those individuals to receive platelets, and many times they're being given those platelets proactively so that it helps lessen the side effects of that treatment. Sometimes the treatment is sort of um, knocking back the bone marrow, and the bone marrow's job, of course, is to produce new blood cells, and part of those cells, of course, would be the platelets, and so if the treatments knock down the, the bone marrow's productivity, then these individuals could bleed a lot. So we provide them with, the hospitals provide them with platelets so it can help. They don't have massive nosebleeds or whatever, bleeds out of other places. You know, the things we don't really think about or really want to talk about, um, it's important because it's happening every single day. Hundreds of times a day, people need blood transfusions. My gosh. Hey, let's talk about the way the blood centers are helping treat patients with COVID-19. What uh, unique ways are you doing that? Well, indirectly, of course, we can't take credit for direct patient care, but every blood donor can take a credit for being an indirect patient caregiver when they donate any blood product. But during COVID, we are fortunate to be able to do what we normally do, which is collect blood products, but we have that capacity to collect specific components of the blood. We can collect only platelets, only plasma, only red cells. So we are collecting for hospitals something called COVID-19 convalescent plasma. Convalescent plasma simply means it's plasma from an individual who's convalescing or recovering from Uh something. In this case, it's COVID-19 convalescent plasma. The people who have recovered from COVID-19, even if you were asymptomatic but you knew you had it, then they have antibodies on board that others of us don't. So those antibodies are useful in helping someone who's currently fighting COVID-19 to have a little support. It's been this same type of treatment has been done to uh, help folks with Ebola, It's been used in the past for the Spanish flu pandemic in the 1900s. And, you know, it's just something that is available that hospitals are ordering very commonly. We shipped out more than 2,000 units of convalescent plasma to hospitals each of the last three weeks. 
so as the hospitalization numbers go up, you can only expect that the orders for COVID-19 convalescent plasma are going to go up because it is a treatment they're offering. It's under um, an emergency use indication from the FDA. So I've heard lots of debate going on about, well, we don't know if this works. We don't know if it works. Well, if hospitals are ordering it, we want it to be available to them. U.S. emergency planning services that we have in place all over this country, they want to have a stockpile of this plasma at our blood centers because they don't know how long this situation is going to go on. And they're giving, they're administering it earlier to patients now. Initially, when the pandemic was going on, it was only given to the most seriously ill COVID-19 patients. Now, doctors are administering it earlier. They're able to do that under the FDA guidelines. They're giving it earlier to hospitalized patients. So hopefully, we're preventing some people from getting more seriously ill. Now, if you're somebody who's recovered from COVID-19 and you're listening to the radio right now and you'd like to donate, um, go to the website and there's more information about that there as well, right? Yes. Front and center on our website. Really? Oh, good. That's like yes. the number one thing pretty much, schedule right? Schedule now. Okay. <laughs> and you can make a direct um, appointment schedule for yourself, but you can also get some help if mm-hmm. you want to call. Um, they have a, a special number that will get you more directly there. It's 817-412-5830. 817-412-5830. Or like you mentioned, just go to the website front and center and hit the button that says schedule now and it walks you through all the process. Now, what if someone wants to host a blood drive? Can they do that now? Oh, yes. (laughs) We are loving it if you want to host a blood drive and they don't have to be uh, as big as we used to have. Um, you You can send an email to book a blood drive. Book a blood drive all run together at carterbloodcare.org You can host a regular blood drive, or you can also host a drive for the COVID-19 convalescent plasma. Mm -hmm. If you have a lot of people in your office space or your community group, whatever that is, that that all um, had COVID and they're recovered, and you want to say, hey, let's get together, have a bus come out, and we'll collect that, or we have an inside setup and we can do this. We've had a lot of fire departments, police departments, you know, first responder groups that have asked us to bring a bus out because, as we know, a lot of those folks um, have been exposed. And so we're looking for any kinds of blood drives, whether it's for um, whole blood and our normal collections we do or if it's for the COVID-19 convalescent plasma. So it's not so much uh, come to give blood because of the COVID situation. It's more, we'll come to you. <laughs> yes, yes, we can do that. We we'll we'll be can. happy to help <laughs> help you yes. give blood. Yes, and if you send an email to that um, uh-huh. book, a blood drive at carterblackcare.org, they can respond and tell you what all to expect and what's needed from you and, and so forth. So it makes it a pretty easy process for you. Now, if you've had the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, how does that affect blood donors? Well, it's sort of interesting. One of the things we're doing, we started back in June um, testing all successful blood donations for antibodies to COVID-19. It's not the test for the virus itself, but for the antibodies. So when you donate blood with Carter Blood Care right now, you are getting test results along with your cholesterol and your blood pressure and all of that uh, through a unique portal that you set up for yourself, and you can access your results to see if you were positive or negative for antibodies. So now people are donating, and they maybe had, maybe they had, um, you know, the vaccine, and they're wanting to know, okay, if I have positive antibody result, does that mean my vaccine didn't work? (laughs) (laughs) And the simple answer is, your vaccine worked, and what that means is, we are not, there, there are several uh, layers of antibodies that, that are going on here. The initial antibody screening test that Carter Blood Care uses is unlikely to be positive after you receive the vaccine. The antibodies that are generated after the vaccine are not detected by the specific screening test that we do. So every test detects a certain part of that virus, and your lack of a positive antibody test doesn't mean that your vaccine didn't work. It's a completely different test. So you may test positive because you tested positive before. You know, people who are coming back to give again, if they've already gotten a positive antibody screening at some point, they're still probably going to have one. 
but the vaccine not detecting a positive antibody screening does not mean your vaccine didn't work. Is there like an age range of people that donate blood that you recommend? Well, I recommend people start at age 16, and not just because I work at Carter Blood Care. Mm -hmm. (laughs) People at age 16 can begin donating blood uh, with parents' consent or guardians' consent. And we have those uh, forms available at every place where we do uh, blood donations. They're also on our website. So during COVID, I think it's an awesome opportunity for young people to donate with their parents or grown-ups so they can go through the process with them, they see how they react. If you start at a young age donating blood at least two to three times a year, you're more likely to make that a habit for life. And right now across the country, the average age of the blood donor population is 50, 5-0. Wow. So our generations who were around when we had world wars and then even in the, you know, the, our baby boomers, those generations were more aware of blood donation. I think it was because civics was taught in schools, oh. <laughs> That's my opinion. Civics, That's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, civic, and so, civic and social responsibility was mm-hmm. just a... It was a big thing. Right. I remember my parents being very involved in, you know, voting and local campaigns and just by making phone calls mm-hmm. to get people out to vote, you know, those kinds of things. Blood donation sort of falls in that category for some people. If you've seen your parent or other people you know donate blood, then you think it's something you do. And we don't have that going on very much right now. And I can tell you, the younger we are, the less likely we are to be on medications that would defer us, the less likely we are to have health issues that might defer us from blood donation. And we're, we're young and vibrant and can do that. So we really encourage young people um, to start as soon as they can, but there's no upper age limit for blood, blood donation. It's all based on your specific medical history and what's going on with your health. So um, starting young is the best way to go. And, you know, the blood supply needs diversity. It needs to mirror the community that we serve. So we do need more diversity in our blood supply. Um, We need younger people, people of color. We need people of different ages and stages of life so that we can uh, sustain this, you know, broad spectrum of blood that uh, that is needed every day for patients in our hospitals. How badly is blood needed now compared to before COVID-19? I would say it's really something that we are pleading people to keep top of mind. I see. When you want to get out of the house, <laughs> go donate blood. <laughs> yeah, well, what are we going to do? You know, we that's can't go to I, the movies. Let's yeah, get blood. <laughs> that's what I tell people. Start establishing a relationship with your favorite uh, phlebotomists at oh. our donation centers. There's 25 of them around our service area. Mm-hmm. and. We really um, encourage you to do that. It, it is something I think once you once you start doing it, you will find that um, you know, hey, you're you're getting rid of some blood red blood cells too, and getting some new ones growing back. So uh, you know, just might uh, keep your blood blood marrow bone marrow activated there, generate some new red blood cells. <laughs> it's good for you, and you might be saving someone's life. Yes, and you know, here's my last little little story. I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Even if you're a blood donor, you learn things about your health that are very significant. A gentleman recently contacted us and said at a recent blood drive, and he's a regular donor, multi-gallon donor, he was deferred because the phlebotomist said, you know, your heart rate is not regular. So they contacted our medical director and called and said, hey, here's what I'm seeing, blah, blah, blah. The medical director said, you know, I can't let you donate today. I would recommend you go see your doctor. The gentleman was pretty upset because he likes doing that and he wanted to do his part and he's healthy. He had just had a physical and blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? The gentleman had AFib. He was one of those people walking around with a high risk of stroke and he was healthy. He was a runner. He's doing all the right things. He emailed us to say thank you because if it were not for giving blood, he might not have identified that issue until it was too late. 
He took some medication for a while. Doctor told him, hey, you're a good candidate for this procedure where we can try to, you know, treat this and get your heart rhythm back on track. And then he'll be able to donate again. Hmm. So, you know, it's just kind of a good way to keep up with stuff, too. You find things out that you might not otherwise find out. Can't think of a downside. I think giving <laughs> blood is just about the best thing you can do. I think it is, and uh, I think it's, it gives me a boost just knowing that I'm really helping someone at a very important level. Well, that's great. Be a multi-gallon donor, or you give a couple of quarts. What, what, yes. what is a typical donation, by the way? It's a pint. It's a about pint, a pint. A pint. Okay. And so, um, yeah, you can do it up to six times a year, whole blood. And then uh, platelets, you can do every few weeks. And then, you know, so hmm. we're always looking for blood donors. Linda Geltzer. Director of Public Relations, Carter Blood Care. We appreciate you chatting with us this morning, and uh, please give blood. Thank you so much, Jim. This is an important message, and we just appreciate your time. We appreciate yours. Thank you for listening this morning. I'm Jim Zippo of 98.7 K Love. Tune in next week as we focus on other organizations in North Texas doing great things right here on Better Living. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.